So I want you to imagine that you are flying from Cleveland to Florida. Maybe you're going to Disney World or the beach or, or what, wherever, but you're, you're flying from Cleveland to Florida. What percentage of your trip do you think would be off course? Considered off course? Not quite. So 90% of your flight would be considered off course from turbulence or a number of other factors. And yet the crazy thing about that is that most of the time you arrive in the correct city at about the right time. And the reason for that is because the pilot is constantly making little adjustments to keep the plane on course. And he knows when to make those corrections or how much correction needs to be made because warning lights go off that tell him he's off course and he needs to adjust. And the Christian life is really quite similar. When, when we accept Jesus as our Savior and King, when we, he sets us on a course that is, is heaven-bound. He restores our relationship with God and with others. And yet because of our sin nature, we are frequently off course, which is where repentance comes in. Uh, repentance is the corrective measure to keep us on course with God. And so we can't just accept Jesus as our Savior and throw things into autopilot. We need to be constantly riding the plane if we're going to arrive at our destination. And so tonight what I want to do as part of our mini-series on repentance is I want us to look at the warning light. What is the thing that goes off in our lives whenever we need to make a course correction, whenever we need to repent? And we find out what that is in our text this evening in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. There Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The warning light that goes off in our life, according to this passage, is something called grief. And from our text, I want us to see three things. I want us to see what grief is. I want us to see grief gone wrong and how grief is set right. So what is grief? Grief, we normally think of grief as the emotion we experience whenever we lose something. And that is certainly true, but Scripture has a broader understanding of it. It, it, it really just means mental suffering, some type of mental suffering state uh, when you see it in Scripture. So what you have to do then is look at the context to figure out what the person is grieving about. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the Corinthians grieving in our text? Well, in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians is another letter that Paul wrote. Uh, he references it in verse 8. So, so the Corinthians apparently did not heed Paul's instruction in 1st Corinthians, and so he writes them a second letter, and it is a scathing retort of the Corinthians, and it grieves them. It causes them to change their behavior. Um, and, um, change their and, and so what the context tells us about grief here is that uh, their grief is brought on by a sense of guilt over their wrongdoing, whatever wrongdoing Paul puts them on blast for. And so grief in this passage is really synonymous with guilt. And guilt is one of those bad emotions that no one wants to feel, right? Uh, 
but uh, guilt is actually a really, it's a really good thing. It's a gift in a sense. Guilt is the emotion we feel whenever we have committed a specific wrong. Um, and, that, and that distinction is really important. Like, let's say that I walked up to Rowan and I just, like, punch him in the face, right? Like, I might think to myself, I'm a horrible individual, and that might be true, but that's not guilt. Guilt would say, I shouldn't have gotten angry and lashed out at Rowan in that way, right? So, see, it's a specific offense. It's not a blanket statement. And that distinction is really important because guilt is trying to do something in our life. See, see, guilt is not interested in having us just wallow in our sorrow. Sorrow is really a very unhelpful emotion uh, because sorrow doesn't change anything. You can be sorry that you got an F on the test. It doesn't change the fact you got an F. You can be sorry that you are sick, sorrowful over sickness. It doesn't, doesn't heal you or cure you. And so, guilt is not intended to leave you in sorrow. Guilt is intended to move you along this spectrum, move you from grief to repentance to life, to salvation. And so guilt is the warning light that goes off in our life that tells us that something has gone awry, that we need to correct course and repent. And Paul says that leads to salvation, uh, a flourishing life both with God and with others. But there's also a wrong turn that's available to us whenever grief shows up in our life, which he mentions in verse 10. He refers to it as worldly grief that leads to death. In other words, it's grief that has gone wrong. And so what makes grief worldly? It's whenever we take guilt and it's transformed into shame. Uh, Shame and guilt, we use it almost as identical terms, but there's one really subtle difference that makes all the difference. Guilt is a response to a specific wrong. Shape is a, shame is a blanket statement. So guilt says you have committed a wrong. Shame says you are wrong, you are stupid, you are worthless, etc. And so shame is, is trying to do something very different than guilt. Guilt is trying to restore a relationship, whereas shame is seeking to shore up your identity to shore up your significance. And here, here are two ways you can tell if, if your grief has gone off course into shame. First, shame is always marked by self-centeredness. Shame is always seeking to preserve your identity and your desire. So let me try to illustrate. Have you seen the apology videos that people paste, or post on like TikTok and Instagram? Right? Someone has called them out for a, a wrongdoing, and they pop on, and they apologize. And, and if you've watched them, rarely do they ever seem like they're truly repenting of something. And that's because they don't feel any guilt over a specific wrongdoing. They're just trying to preserve their popularity. They're trying to, uh, trying to make sure they don't lose their approval ratings. So they come on, they apologize, not because they're trying to right a wrong, but because they're trying to avoid further loss. And so shame is focused on self-preservation, which makes it self-centered. Another way to distinguish shame from guilt is how it will play out in your life. Um, Silly example, but I think it makes the point. When I was a freshman in high school, I went to church camp. About 300 of us were there, and we were playing Gorilla Man Gun, which if you don't know what that is, it's rock, paper, scissors put to song. And somehow, I was the finalist. Me, it was me and another kid. And they, they 
bring us up in front of the whole camp and like, tell us your name and what team you're on. Important sidebar, our team name for that year had to be based off of footwear. And so we were the Stilettos, which is a woman's high-heeled shoe. <laughs> and so freshman homeschooled Caleb gets up and he tries so hard to say Stilettos. And I just couldn't do it. And so in front of the whole camp, I am stuttering, like, dust, 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 and I just can't get it out. And so the entire camp is just laughing their head off at me. So do you think I felt any guilt in that situation? No, but I felt a ton of shame. If you would have been able to peek into the internal narrative that was going on in my head, it would have been something along the kinds of, you are an idiot, Caleb. You can't even say stilettos. Uh, You are dumb, and no one is going to want to be your friend now. And what happens is when shame sets in on our lives, we are filled with regret and despair, and we lash out in anger. Why? Because we're trying to preserve our identity. Our our significance has taken a hit, and we're trying to preserve what worth we still have. And and what that does is it cuts us off from everyone. It, It throws us into hiding. It eventually leads to death. Death in your personal relationships and your spiritual one. And so what needs to happen is that grief needs to be set right. And in order for that to happen, something has to be done to our identity. See, shame typically goes hand in hand with guilt because our identity is so dependent on performance. Uh, if, If I do something wrong, it impacts my identity. And so they go together. And so what needs to happen is these two somehow need to be separated from one another. But for that to happen, our identity would have to be so secure, our significance would have to be built on something so immovable uh, that, that we could handle messing up. And yet that is exactly what we have when we've placed our faith in Jesus. Here's how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 3.1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given, has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is our identity. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, we are beloved children of God. And here's why that's possible. Because Jesus dealt with your shame. Um, In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 5, it tells us that, that Jesus had no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, on the cross, Jesus not only absorbed the punishment for your sin, he absorbed your shame. Jesus was exposed to the world. He was mocked. He was alienated from the Father. All of this happened so that you and I might be healed. And here's how John puts our uh, situation now in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. He says, my children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the one who turns away God's wrath for our sins. 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, the cross keeps us above this threshold. It keeps us from going off course into shame because our identity, because our significance is as fixed as Jesus' own identity and significance. Grief over our sin can lead to repentance and life. And so when the warning light goes off, when, when you are grieved by your wrongdoing, when, when guilt is tapping on your heart, you can confess your sin because he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Music